Section 5 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Militia. Antonia by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Section 5. A most delightful woman, said Marcel Thierry to himself as he left her. Deuce take me, if I were not an attorney, married to the best woman on earth, and the father of a bouncing boy, all of which things tend to guarantee the strength of a man's brain. I should be in love with this countess myself. Oh, head over heels in love, I verily believe. I will tell my wife so this evening, and we will have a good laugh over it. How did it happen? Madame d'Estrelle was thinking at that moment, that I did not ask Thierry what it is most important for me to know. I thought of it, and then I forgot it. I must find out, however. If this young Thierry lives with his mother, it will not be proper for him to make my garden his usual place of promenade. But perhaps he is not a young man. Did he say that he was young? His father was very old, but did he say that he was so very old? I cannot remember at all. However, my servants must know. Servants know everything. She rang. Camille, she said to her maid. Has this Madame Thierry, who lives in the old pavilion yonder, a most excellent person, I know, has she any children? I talked with her yesterday, but I didn't think of asking her. She has a son, Camille replied. About how old? Twenty-five, judging from his face. He is married, of course. No, Madame. Where does he live? At the pavilion with his mother. Is he a good sort of man? What do people say of him? He is a most excellent young man, Madame la Comtesse. Everybody speaks well of him. They are very poor, and they pay all their bills, never keep anybody waiting. And yet they are not stingy, they never do anything mean. One would say that they must be people of quality. Camille did not mean to flatter her mistress by speaking in that way. She too claimed to be well-born, and to have known better days. She claimed that some of her ancestors had been sheriffs. Mon Dieu, Camille, birth is of no consequence, said the Countess, who was often vexed by her maid's airs. I beg pardon, Madame la Comtesse, rejoined Camille tartly. I thought that it was of the greatest consequence. As you please, my dear, go and bring me my grey parasol. There is so much of this pride on all sides, thought Madame de Strel, that it will disgust me with all prejudices. It will make me more fond of Jean-Jacques Rousseau than I ought to be, and really I am beginning to wonder if the great are not living a little on their past, and if all this antiquated nonsense is not becoming useful to amuse our servants. She took her grey parasol with a vague feeling of dissatisfaction, then sat down in her salon, open to the April sun, saying to herself that she must not go in the direction of the pavilion any more, and perhaps not into her garden at all. Then it was that Madame Thierry, finding that she did not come to meet her as she expected, ventured to go as far as the house, to pay her respects to her and thank her. Madame d'Estrel received her with great courtesy, but the widow was too keen not to detect a shade of embarrassment in her greeting, and she had hardly seated herself before she thanked her and rose to go. "'Already,' said the Countess, "'you find me ungracious, I am sure, and I confess that I feel some slight embarrassment with you today, which makes me act foolishly. So let us have done at once with this nonsense, which I am sure you will forgive.' 
when i came and spoke to you yesterday i had no idea that you had a son a young and estimable man i am told who lives with you let me tell you the rest madame la comtesse you are afraid oh mon dieu i am afraid that people will talk that is all i am young alone in the world with no immediate protector a stranger in a family which accepted me only with regret as I learned too late, and which blames me for not choosing to pass my period of mourning in a convent. I know all that, Madame la Comtesse. My nephew Marcel told me. As I am most solicitous for your good name, I do not propose that your kindness of heart shall carry you too far. You must not come to the pavilion so long as I live there, nor must I come into the garden or to your house. That is what I came to say to you. It is not necessary for me to add that my son never for an instant supposed that he was included in the permission which you so graciously gave me yesterday. Very good, cried the Countess. This last point is all that is necessary. I thank you for your delicacy, which makes it possible for me not to return your visits. But as to the other point, I do not agree with you. You would walk in my garden, and you will come to see me. Perhaps it would be better that I should not come. No, no, replied Julie, earnestly. You must come. I insist upon it. And if you don't come, I shall be obliged to go to fetch you and knock at your window again, which will compromise me. Tell me, she added with a smile, if you wish me to ruin myself for you, I warn you that I am capable of it. Madame Thierry could not resist the fascination of this artless generosity. She yielded, making a mental vow that she would fly to the other end of Paris if her presentiment of Julian's passion proved not to be a dream of her maternal imagination. Now said the countess let us arrange the conditions of our intercourse in order to put an end to all danger of evil speaking the pavilion has only four windows looking on my garden the two lower ones i do not know the arrangement of the rooms the two lower ones are in the room which my son uses as a studio and i as a salon we always sit there but the lower sash with four panes of ground glass is stationary and we open only the upper sashes but they are often open at this season. Then you cannot look into my house, as I was told. But that sash with the ground glass was not stationary yesterday. It was partly open. True, Madame la Comtesse. There was a broken pane which you may have noticed. No, my sight is bad. Consequently, I don't look very closely. For that reason, I had to open that sash, a very unusual thing. But it was repaired and fastened again this morning. Light from below would be very inconvenient for my son in his painting, and he stretches a green cloth over the window on the inside, so he would have to stand on a chair to look into your garden, and, as he is a serious-minded man, and not an ill-taught schoolboy, very well, very well, my mind is at rest concerning the lower floor. The windows above are in my bedroom. My son's room looks on the street, and he never sits in your room, no one in my garden will ever see a man at your windows it has never happened and never will happen i will answer for it nor will he ever come to the garden door even for an instant you would warn him be perfectly at ease in that respect my son is a man of honour i do not doubt it commend my honour to him and let us say no more about him that is to say let us say no more about me for to forbid you to speak of him would be very cruel i know that he is your pride and your joy and I congratulate you. Madame Thierry had made up her mind not to say another word about Julian, but it was impossible for her to keep to her determination. Step by step, she finally reached a point where she gave full expression to her idolatry of that adored son, 
who were well deserved to be adored. The Countess listened without any uncalled-for scruples to her enumeration of the young artist's talents and virtues, but she became a little melancholy at the thought that she should probably never have children to afford occupation for her youth and console her old age. Madame Thierry divined her secret thought and changed the subject. What was Julian doing while they were talking about him in the little summer salon of the Hotel d'Estrelle? He was working, or was supposed to be working. He constantly changed his position. He was hot and cold. He started at the slightest sound. He said to himself that perhaps his name was on the Countess's lips at that moment, that perhaps she was asking some question about him, merely as a matter of form, without listening to the answer. He went to the window, the lower sash of which was really nailed in its place and covered with a green cloth, but there was an imperceptible slit in that cloth. There was a scratch on the ground glass, and through that treacherous crevice, cunningly made and cunningly concealed, he saw Madame d'Estrelle every day, strolling among the shrubbery in her garden and walking along the path which was in full view from the pavilion. Julian knew almost to a minute her regular hours for that walk. When some accident interfered with her usual practice, then mysterious presentiments, the divinatory instinct which belongs only to love, and especially to a first love, warned him of Julie's approach. Then he invented a thousand pretexts, each more ingenious than the last, for turning his mother's vigilant eye in some other direction, and gazing at his fair neighbour, or else he would find that he had to go and get something in his bedroom, or would go upstairs, his mother remaining below, enter her room and look through the blind. In fact, he had adored Julie for a fortnight, and Julie thought that he had never seen her, and Madame Thierry lied unconsciously when she said that her son could see nothing from the studio, and that he had never looked out of her bedroom windows. To Julien himself there was something insane, or at all events inexplicable, in that sudden passion which had taken possession of him, who was so sensible in all other respects. But as there is a cause for every effect, it is our place to seek it, and not be too free to admit the improbability of actual occurrences. Marcel came very often, with or without his wife, to pass a portion of the evening with his aunt Thierry. Julian and he were much attached to each other, and although they often disagreed, Marcel considering Julien too romantic, and Julien considering Marcel too practical, they would have died for each other. Marcel talked freely about his practice, which was rapidly increasing. When Julien asked him, Is your office flourishing? He would answer, it is budding, my boy, it is budding. I often have clients who bring me more honour than profit, and they are not the ones of whom I think the least. Among these clients, who were not fond of litigation, but to whom he owed pleasant or profitable connections, Marcel placed the Comtesse d'Estrelle in the first rank. He mentioned her so often, and in such enthusiastic terms, he thought and spoke so severely of the lovely widow's unworthy husband, he inveighed so bitterly against the inhuman avarice of the family, he took such a profound interest in Julie's gentle and noble character. He involuntarily extolled her charm so warmly that Julian was curious to see her. He saw her and loved her, if indeed he did not love her before he saw her. Julian had never loved before. He had led a very virtuous life. He had experienced a great sorrow. He was at the height of his physical and mental development, his susceptibility was overstrained by the courageous efforts he had made, by a constant exchange of fervent affection with his loving mother, 
by a tendency to enthusiasm which he derived from long association with an enthusiastic father. He lived in seclusion, he denied himself all diversion, and worked with intense eagerness to preserve the honour of his name and to save his mother from want. All this must inevitably find a vent, and that generous heart discharge its surplus emotion. We will say no more about it. Indeed, we have already said far too much in explanation of that impossible phenomenon which we see every day, a persistent, violent, boundless aspiration toward an object which is known to be unattainable. Long, long before, La Fontaine had written this refrain, which had passed into a proverb. Love, love, when thou dost hold us, well may we say, prudence, farewell. End of section 5. Read by Jake Militia.